Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we have not yet discussed the news that has rocked the Seattle Seahawks as uh we did no post-game pod on Thursday after the Seahawks lost to the Los Angeles Rams. Of course, the big storyline there, the departure of Russell Wilson. And we learned on Friday that uh, a pair of injuries, an extensor tendon rupture, commonly known as mallet finger, and a community, community, community fracture dislocation of the proximal interphalangeal joint. And he had surgery performed by Dr. Stephen Shin at the Curlin Job Surgery Center in LA with a timeline of four to eight weeks for Russell Wilson's return. Ian Rappaport of NFL Network reported Sunday that Wilson is targeting a return in week 10 versus Green Bay, which would mean missing, missing three games ahead of the week nine by at Pittsburgh, New Orleans, and Jacksonville for a team that is currently two and three and in last place in their division. So. I, you know, this is a podcast that we've never been able, we've never had to do before. Been able is the wrong way to put it. It's a podcast we've never had to do before, right? We, I mean, since literally every week we've recorded a podcast, Russell Wilson, that the Seahawks have played. Russell Wilson has been healthy and started that game and finished that game. Started a podcast. The podcast went away. The podcast came back. Russell Wilson was steadfast during that time period. Uh, as the uh, Amazing that he managed to soldier on through the period where we weren't doing a podcast. It was, it was a real feat, but the, <laughs> It's something we haven't had to consider, and that is what will the Seahawks look like without Russell Wilson as their quarterback? And, you know, the circumstances of it with the situation and the team in general, they just, it's a pretty unique circumstance because we're going to talk about these next three to five weeks, kind of what, what it will look like. And to me, Russell Wilson not being there is a huge deal. But also, I think that more needs to be said about the Seahawks' long-term future success, potentially about the structure of the team and their defense, even more than it does about Russell Wilson. And, you know, I think the, the question is, is this team built to win games in the 2021 season? And how much of a difference does Russell Wilson make in that equation? Considering that they are two and three, they have a couple of pretty brutal losses when you look around at the results in other games that those teams have played, right? You know, losing to the Rams is one thing, but losing to the Titans and losing to the Vikings, really getting pretty dominated by the Vikings is another question. Those were games with Russell Wilson. So I understand that the, the conversation changes going forward, but if this is going to be the team and the defense that the Seahawks are going to field, I'm not sure how much of a difference Russell Wilson makes as far as the long-term success for this season on the Seahawks. Well, I got a couple of thoughts in response to that. I mean, my first thought is, and I did reflect on this actually the previous Sunday when Jimmy Garoppolo left the game at halftime against the Seahawks, just the fact that 49ers fans have had to do this repeatedly, go through this repeatedly with Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, obviously no fault of his, but he's suffered a series of injuries and how Hashtag blessed we have been as Seahawks fans to never have to worry about Russell Wilson's health basically his entire career. I mean, that's that's incredibly unusual. It's 
a something we probably will after Russell Wilson leaves the Seahawks will never enjoy the rest of our lives again as football fans to go through a stretch like this of having elite quarterback play week in week out for such an extended period of time. So I, you know, as much as I think it's disappointing and, and frustrating that Russell Wilson is injured now, it's also kind of made me think, wow, how lucky have we been to not have to go through this? To your second point, yeah, I mean, I even even before Wilson got injured, the Rams game felt critical to the future of the franchise. Before that game, there's a segment on the Fox broadcast. Uh, Aaron Andrews actually asked Russell Wilson about the offseason and his trade request in her pregame interview with him. And then they come out to the studio and Greg Olson is talking about the fact that Russell Wilson only cares about being in position to win and his legacy. And if those two things aren't going to be maximized in Seattle, that he will look to get traded and indicated that they're definitely, you know, reiterated, I guess I would say from the locker room perspective, that there was some tension last season over the offense and how much to throw the ball and how much to feature Russell Wilson, which none of it's surprising, but still to hear it openly discussed right before the game is about to start kind of a doubter. Uh, when, so what was the quote about Greg Olson? He only cares about winning, right? He cares about legacy. winning. He cares about his legacy. It, it really kind of gave me a little bit of like a Regina George type vibe. Like, I mean, I, I don't care. Like, do whatever you want, Seattle Seahawks. But let me just tell you something about Russell Wilson, okay? All he cares about is winning and his legacy and his mom and his friends. <laughs> and again even before this injury and perhaps more so after it, does this seem like a place where Russell Wilson is going to be able to win, win big and establish his legacy? Really doesn't. I mean, Thursday felt a lot like the end of an era. You said that about two weeks ago, we got the Vikings game, but I think much more la- Thursday night was that. Every game feels like the end of an era. Uh, I, we, I don't the 49ers know should... game did not feel like the end of an era. I don't know if we can talk that much about the, the era ending yet because a lot can happen before then. Right. Uh, and, and I'm not well, willing to well, just say that. Well, if the era ends, we'll have plenty of time to talk about it. Ending yes. it ends. I, a... I'm not willing to go as far as to say that like Russell Wilson is done as the Seahawks quarterback after this year, but can I offer some positivity about oh, the season? Okay. Well, I, I don't, maybe before then we should just talk about just how bad the defense is because the defense at this point is looking historically bad. I thought and that was that was going to be the counterpoint to the uh, positivity. To the positivity, the, yeah. The defense is looking historically bad. They've played some very good offenses so far this year, and some offenses that are uniquely built to play against the Seahawks defense. At the same time, maybe any professional offense is uniquely built to play against the Seahawks defense, provided mm-hmm. they don't have Trey Lance as their quarterback. I was going to say, or Jimmy Garoppolo. But the what has happened to them? is I think we have to say it is it is a personnel issue. And we've talked about this before, but it is it is a scheme issue. Seeing Jordan Book Brooks be asked to do what Jordan Brooks is asked to do, like that is not putting a player like Jordan Brooks in the best possible situation. It feels like every pass that's completed is right in front of him or Jamal Adams, right? Which is just like it's especially damning for last last offseason when you see those two players having every pass completed in front of them. Uh but Jamal Adams maybe is a a different issue. Jamal Adams, for all intents and purposes, was a good player in New York. 
with the Jets. And I'm not sure I'm convinced that Jamal Adams just got bad. I think there are deep scheme issues with the Seahawks and there are deep issues with the fact that this has been the defense they've run for the better part of a decade and teams have figured it out. You know, coaches that are capable of figuring it out and have the personnel to do so have figured it out. I mean, you saw that the Rams threw basically the same pass over and over and over again in that second half and the Seahawks could not stop it. Pete Carroll said it was the same concept, but technically different routes, technically different paths. I, I mean, there, <laughs> He's there, parsing there, some differences that maybe do not make him look semantics. that much better. Yes. Pete Carroll also said on Friday on, on ESPN Seattle and his usual day after show with, with Mike Salk that, you know, guys were jumping around and, and, you know, not executing the scheme, but that's the second time he's had to say that in three weeks, uh, the team has allowed 450 yards yardage isn't the be all end all of defense by any means, but 450 yards, uh, in all four and four consecutive weeks, I should say all four since in Indianapolis, which is tied for the longest streak in NFL history. And at some point, if the execution keeps being such a problem that the scheme doesn't work, that's not an execution problem. The scheme is the problem. Yeah. Or, or the talent, I suppose, but like the, at the end of the day, it almost doesn't matter. Exactly. It's broken. And so, okay, give me, give me your positivity now. The positivity is the Seahawks have probably what is their easiest stretch of the season coming up over the next three games heading into a bye week. So if this was going to happen, and given the reports that we had today from Ian Rappaport that Russ is targeting a November 14th return, which I don't, I don't think are overly optimistic. You no, know, I mean, it's, it's in the timeline. It's aggressive for the timeline, but... You also kind of assume that Russell Wilson is going to be pushing it as much as he can. I mean, he tried to play through this injury and, and played a series. The, the next three games with the Steelers on Sunday night, the Saints on Monday night, and then Jacksonville. I mean, you look at them DVOA-wise. The Saints have actually been quite good DVOA-wise. Uh, but otherwise, the, the Steelers are looking at, where were they? in DVOA 24th and they're basically not good at anything although they're playing much better today yeah I said uh, they're, they're gonna move up the Jaguars look like one of the worst teams in the NFL yeah and the Saints I, I'm not sure how much of that DVOA is coming from the one victory against the Packers uh, which it could be heavily heavily weighted towards that their offense also has not looked very good their defense looks good which we'll see it's one of those things where you're like looking at the Seahawks and Geno Smith is such an unknown that I feel like you have to look at it and be like, well, as long as they're not going to thrash the Seahawks defense, there's a chance. So probably. <laughs> so there's probably not a chance. I mean, one of the comparisons that people made in this is to the Saints in 2019 when they went 5-0 and after Drew Brees had thumb surgery and was sidelined. One of those wins, of course, coming at Lumen Field against the Seahawks, the uh, then century length field. Uh, the difference is, those states were eighth in defensive DVOA. They were third in special teams DVOA. That was a team that was built to win without elite offense and be elite when they did have the and, elite and offense. And also had a, a pretty great backup quarterback. Yeah, I mean, Teddy Bridgewater is a start, has been a starting quarterback in the league the last two years, uh, has been successful. So, you know, I think your expectations for him are higher than you are for Gina, uh, there were for they are for Geno Smith. But again, that team was built to win a 24-21 game. The Seattle Seahawks are not built to win that kind of game, even if that might have been the score against San Francisco or something like that. That's an outlier in their success. I mean, they can't just run the ball and, and rely on the defense. The 2013 is not walking through that door. 
I mean, I mean, but that's why the stretch is important because you look at the Saints, 18th in offensive DVOA. You look at the Steelers, 25th in offensive DVOA, and the Jaguars, 27th in offensive DVOA. Right. What, so, what the Steelers, the one thing the Steelers do do on offense, which is like throw the ball short and have their receivers run far, is literally <laughs> the exact thing you want to do against the Seahawks. I, I mean, we'll we, we'll save the preview for next week. I'm for not, the not convinced pods. that the Steelers offense is they're exactly going to score 50. Built. Yeah, no, I I'm not convinced that that they're as well built to play against the Seahawks as the Rams are, or that they just, that they could scheme as well as Sean McVay can for the Seahawks defense. Probably not. Uh, But you're saying that like, I'm like, that's like, they, they killed the Steelers, the Seahawks defense last week. Like I, I do not think Ben Roethlisberger is capable of doing what Matt Stafford did in that game. I think he's capable of doing what Matthew Stafford did in the first half of that game. Well, yeah, that was fine. We'll take that. But, most importantly is if they can get through this stretch and be, if they could get through the stretch two and one, which I don't think is unreasonable, they'll be sitting at 500 heading into that bye week with potentially Russ coming back after that. Does that mean that the defense is going to be fixed? Cause the games do get a lot harder after that. There are plenty of division games. The next game that they play after that is against the Packers who can scheme against this defense. Feel pretty confident that they will be able to score points against the t- this defense. But I mean, at that point, four of your nine remaining games will be against the Rams, the Arizona Cardinals, and the Packers. It still puts them in striking distance for a playoff spot. I think we have to say that even before this Ross injury, you know, the idea of like winning the division, getting a bye week, things like that, those are pretty much out the door. But can they can they sneak into the playoffs? I feel like that's kind of what we're looking at with best case scenario. And I'm not the type of person who would say we don't want to sneak into the playoffs, especially with, without having a first round draft pick, you just, you got to get to the show, right? You, you got to get to the dance to be able to do anything and getting there is the most important aspect more teams than ever do now. And the season is a little bit longer. So there is still some reason for positivity. Uh, do you agree with this? Well, I think they're going to be three and five. I, I think they will I think they will be lucky to win two of the next three games, which again is nothing against Geno Smith who played extreme, like given the circumstances coming in cold off the bench, not having played a meaningful snap in several years here, Geno Smith was so much better than you realistically could have hoped or expected. I mean, the offense ran better with him at quarterback than it ran with Russell Wilson, uh, you know, probably because of some unsustainable third down stuff on both sides of that. But I mean, he was outstanding and gave the Seahawks a chance to win that game until Tyler Lockett went down and, and that final pass was intercepted. So let's talk about Geno Smith for a second here, who's a pretty unique quarterback. Uh, somebody, was he a first-round pick or high second-round pick? I believe high second-round. Yeah, 30, number 39. 39th overall. So a high second-round pick who got two seasons kind of thrown into the mix very early, right? Started from day one, considering where he was drafted for the New York Jets. It was, that's a pretty aggressive, it's pretty bold to make him your starter from day one in that season, right? Yeah. Also, forcing him to play with the Jets. <laughs> just just aggressive in general. No one should be forced to play with the Jets offense. Look at Sam Darnold now that he's freed of the shackles of the Jets offense. I mean, he did, was, Gino didn't have to do with, deal with Adam Gase in fairness. Exactly. Uh, you know, I, I don't think he was an, awful quarterback during those first two seasons his rookie year he definitely struggled probably shouldn't have been starting at that point uh had one more season where he improved from the previous year and then is done as a starter which is pretty wild to me i mean he's only started two games since then that he just never was given a chance after that and i think 
I think Geno Smith never really got a fair shake as a starting quarterback, and I'm not sure if it's necessarily indicative of his talent as a player. Obviously, he's hung around as a backup for years. He's gotten, I don't want to say that he's necessarily picked up a ton of reps, but there is experience in there that he's picked up in those seven years since he's been a starting quarterback. I think Geno Smith is a little bit of an unknown, which is better than better than say a, a like youngish quarterback, right? This isn't Davis love the third out there, although looking great today. Uh, but I, I think I would rather have a player it's, like Geno Smith. Davis Mills for the record. Davis Mills. The not, not the golfer, but ha- having Davis Mills out there, somebody like that, like this is a situation where Geno Smith as an experienced quarterback could, could potentially win two of these games. Yeah, I again my pessimism nothing to do with Geno Smith. I mean, I I think you know number one he has gotten experience in the preseason. He's gotten a lot of experience in the Seahawks system and the thing that, you know, the the coaching staff mentioned this came up on the broadcast it was quite evident it's he was steady at the line, was checking in and out of a lot of things there in a way that I don't think like you said a young quarterback you'd expect them to be able to do in that situation. It wasn't necessarily the quickest tempo, which was a bit of an issue with the clock running down, but both drives produced points. He made great decisions. He showed some ability to make plays with his legs still at this age of stage of his career. I think maybe, well, now I guess, I guess I don't know who's the, uh, the third option at this point because Sean Mannion isn't on the road. Uh, Jake Luton, is he still on the Boy. practice? Well? Oh no. Yeah. Uh, you're probably not going to want to run a lot of read option with Geno Smith. Is what I'm saying here. Uh, <laughs> protect Geno Smith. <laughs> yeah, protect Geno Smith at all times. <laughs> so, but you know, he he certainly showed the ability to capably run an offense. So, we move forward into the Geno Smith era. I I you know. I'm happy that there are games that we're not going to go into these games and say these are unwinnable games. Uh, because that's a pretty tough place to be, e- even just as a fan, like watching football. If they were playing the Packers, I would say with Geno Smith at starting quarterback, I would say that was probably an unwinnable game, right? right? But you're not saying the same thing about the Steelers, the Saints, and the Jaguars, and the Jaguars in particular. It's basically like you have to kind of assume that you're going to beat the Jags at home if this team has any talent whatsoever. I don't, I don't think you have to assume that you're going to beat anyone right now. And And you try to pick off one of the two against the Steelers or the Saints. And really see what happens. So, and if they get there, if they get to not the, not the midway point, almost the midway point, if they get to week nine at four and four, you know, there's striking distance from there. So. All right. Well, we've left you with some positivity here. I, I don't feel when it was eight weeks, that was a little bit more sinister, the perspective. And, and also, again, I think the biggest, the biggest deal is, are they going to figure out this defense? which I still think there's the, I I don't, they're not going to change the scheme, but there is more talent on that defense than I think we've seen. I suppose so, but I don't know that the mid season additions that they had last year that helped get them to average are, are walking through that door. Who, who, I mean, Carlos Dunlap. He's already here. He's still on the team, but what other additions were there? Well, DJ Reed, DJ Reed stepping in a cornerback. He's already here. He's already playing. And again, being being at the game, it's a little bit harder to tell exactly what the personnel is. But the like Steelers, the Steelers keep moving the ball against this elite defense, Denver pass defense. So uh, I'm I'm calling it 50 points next. Wow, Sunday. 
Wow. <laughs> 50 points. You think Ben Roethlisberger is scoring 50 Drop points? Drop it at 50. It looks like he might have just injured himself. Oh, no. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, no. He, well, he suffered an injury earlier in the game, but uh, is playing through it. He's like, Oh, no. He's, he's got a thumb? He's holding his hand. like he's Oh, dear. Laboring through that. So, anyway, Dennis Dixon versus Geno Smith, Sunday Night Football. <laughs> no. <laughs> Who is the Steelers' backup now? Uh, it's the old Washington football team quarterback. High draft pick. It'd be a very similar story to Geno oh, Smith. He's younger Dwayne Haskins. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. That's really funny. He's definitely, he looks like he's probably fine, but I don't know. Uh, that would be pretty hilarious if it was Geno Smith versus Dwayne Haskins on Sunday Night Football. <laughs> From Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I didn't really understand why there wasn't more Ryan Neal on the field. Like in those situations where um, that was me watching Ben Roethlisberger throw. <laughs> uh, you're a little situ- ahead of me because you're streaming it and I'm watching it on TV. Those situations where Jordan Brooks is the one in coverage. Why is that not Ryan Neal in coverage? Like I'm happy if they want to just if they want to just completely bench Jordan Brooks and go to five DBs permanently, I think that has to be the scheme, right? And it's certainly worth considering. And I suppose if you're going to make changes this period where you have the, uh, the mini buy uh, with 10 days in between games is a time to do it. They also, There's by the way, still have Mason Rudolph. In addition they do to have Mason Rudolph still? Apparently. I thought he was gone. Um, but they, they've got, yeah, the mini buy, they've got an extended period of time after Sunday's game. There's a lot of time right now on the schedule in between these games. So I, I don't quite understand why linebackers are being asked to do what they're being asked to do in the system. And I think that Ryan Neal, we saw it in the 49ers game. When he came in, the defense looked a hell of a lot better, even against Jimmy G. The defense looked better before it was landed. It looked better. It was also a pretty small sample size. Again, the third downs tend to be pretty variable. They don't seem that variable against the Seahawks. <laughs> no, they, I mean, they were variable. The first half of the Rams game, they didn't convert. In the second half, they converted all of them or didn't get to third down, I guess, because they were completing 20-yard passes to Robert Woods on first or second down. Or Daryl Henderson was running for 10 yards. It, it really kind of felt like the Rams were just like ordering off a menu. Oh, we'll have eight yards on the ground. Mm, mm, that 18 yard into Robert Woods looks delicious today. How is that prepared? I mean, they believe, ran it over and over again. I believe it was full aid Pete Carroll defense, actually. Full aid Pete Carroll defense. Well, hopefully we'll see some sort of change. If, if it's the exact same thing that comes out on Sunday against the Steelers, I think that'll be very disappointing. It will be. But uh, we are definitely going to pivot, pivot to real positivity now because it is time for us to preview the Seattle Kraken's inaugural season of NHL hockey. To help us do that, we're thrilled to welcome in hockey writer and analyst Allison Lucan, whose writing you've seen on the Kraken website, and it was now serving as an analyst on Kraken broadcast for Root Sports. Allison, thanks so much for joining us. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, you were out here in Seattle for training camp and the start of the preseason. You've been following the preseason, obviously, on the broadcast. What have you seen from the crack and thus far, what are your takeaways from that preseason slate? 
Yes, it is a crazy thing, right, to think about this team that didn't exist literally <laughs> just a few months ago. And I think what's been great to see is that you need, just like any sport, right, you need these players to start to understand one another, know how to play with one another, and develop that chemistry. And I think that I've really appreciated that this group has started to find some lines. So the three forwards that are going to play together, defensemen, that's still a work in progress. Who's going to pair with one another? But we're seeing lines take shape. And when we talk about the crack and, you know, the big beef is how is this team going to score? Um, I think that it's going to be score by committee. And so because those forward lines are forming pretty quickly here and finding that chemistry, that's huge to make sure that these groups are going to be able to put the puck in the net. They're going to know how to feed each other. They're going to know how to score off one another. Been pleased with seeing that chemistry. I've really liked what I've seen from Philip Grubauer coming as advertised in net. And again, I, you know, I kind of cracked, cracked, haha, cracked <laughs> on the defensive pair still being up in the air. But I think that is a sign of how strong this team is defensively. Again, something we heard about, but it's holding true that there are so many possible combinations that can work and produce results. And 82 games is a long season. I mean, it's not an NBA season, but it's a long season. And there's going to be injuries. There's going to be times guys might have to play with one another. So while we'd like to see those pairs start to cement, seeing the versatility as well is a good thing to have in your back pocket. Uh, you you already jumped to one of the questions that was on my list, obviously, which is how this team scores goals. It, in general, I, it seems like naturally coming out of the expansion draft, the strength is you've got a very deep roster. The downside is limited stars because those players typically aren't going to be available in the expansion draft. And it, teams were clearly better prepared this time around than they were a few years ago when, Las Vegas, when Vegas came into the league. Uh, so do you feel like it's going to take longer to sort out those lines because of the fact that there's maybe not as much, not as dramatic differences in, in ability across the roster? That's a great question. I hadn't thought about it that way, but I like it. Um, you know, I think the lines will probably jumble when we get some players back from injury, mm -hmm. right? So we've got Yanni Gord, who is expected to be a huge contributor, a huge part of that scoring goals, play center, an important position on any team. Um, so he's going to cause some jumbling, some moving around. And then Mason Blackwell, who's been injured, is also going to return, hopefully at some point, and slot in to the lineup somewhere. So I don't know if they're going to move around for scoring purposes, um, but they are, there is some interchangeability there because there is a lot of depth. There's a lot of similarity in kind of this group of forwards. And so how do they fit? We're seeing some of it. A couple of the lines have jumbled a little bit. Um, I'm trying, you know, Appleton has been moved around a little bit to see where he's going to fall in the lineup. So there's going to be some movement and, you know, I'm not really sure yet. We haven't seen, so, you know, a coach can, put lines together as much as he wants, but if they're not working in a game, you can expect to see those lines change <laughs> too. And some coaches have a really quick trigger finger finger on that. And it'll be interesting to see if Dave Haxtell, to your point, if a game's not going well offensively, is he going to jumble those lines really quick? Or is he going to have patience with them and let them try to sort it out? All right, well, let's talk specifically about that forward group. It seemed like we saw a variety of different goal scorers over the course of the preseason, which probably inevitably is going to be the case in the preseason. But again, given depth and maybe not as much star talent is what we'd expect from 
the uh, the Kraken throughout this season. But also, do you see, you know, one of your strengths is obviously the ability to uh, interpret and uh, make accessible statistics in hockey, some sort of undervalued players that the Kraken have maybe been able to give some greater opportunities this season? Yes. And this is the this is the William Carlson question, right? This is a player who was a third line center on his previous team, gets selected by Vegas in the expansion draft and then aided by a huge inflated shooting percentage, you know, puts up, you know, just a monstrous goal total and point total. And then Jonathan Marcheseau was another player who found similar success in Vegas. So who are those players on the Kraken is a really big question. Players that I've, I've liked that I see possibly able to seize opportunity, although now the lineup is shifting again, of course, um, is geeky. I really like what I've seen from him. He's hungry. The attitude is feeding the ability. He's playing in the center. So again, a position that's going to get a lot of looks, a lot of opportunity, and he's not been afraid to take advantage of shot opportunities, scoring chance opportunities, particularly getting into the dirty areas, which means net front places where rebounds are going to pop out. And that's how this team is going to have to score. So that's a player I've got my eye on. I'm also really curious to see uh, Ryan Donato. This is a player who was really highly valued coming out of his draft. Um, and many have said kind of underperformed um, in his, with his previous teams, Boston, Minnesota. But he's looked really strong to me in camp. Um, and if, if you go back to the last preseason game against Vancouver, he sits up net front, catches the rebound, and doesn't just have the opportunity and the skill to gather the puck on his stick, but he pauses. He takes a quick beat to figure out where the goaltender is and then lifts the puck up to get it past the goaltender and get the puck in the net. So if he can put it together, that's another guy who I think could pop. Um, trying to think who else might, everyone's going to have a different role on this team. Everyone's going to see more minutes. So it's going to be up to the player to prove if they can take advantage of those minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, you mentioned how well Grubauer has played during the preseason. It seems like goaltending is pretty clearly the strength of this team with a, a group of him and Chris Dreger. How good relative to the league can can that duo, can that depth be? They're gonna they're gonna be good. And they're looking good in camp. The one thing I'm concerned about with these goaltenders, and we've seen Grubauer respond to it a little bit more quickly than Drieger, is the fact that this team is so defensive, they're going to limit shots against. If they're playing the way they want, they're going to limit shots against. Many goaltenders need shots to keep themselves engaged in the game. So when there's a low shot count, and we saw this with Drieger's last game, when there's a low shot count, it can be hard to get your performance right to where it needs to be and snap into game mode and be at your highest level. So they're going to have to adjust, hopefully, to a lower shot count. But they've looked, particularly Grubauer, as advertised. These are guys who are not just turning away pucks, but they turn away pucks that are high danger chances against. So they're turning away the most dangerous looks. And particularly Drieger, he played with in Florida. And Florida has tightened up their defense over the years, but they were pretty loose defensively. They allowed a lot of cross slot passes, which challenges a goaltender to move laterally and makes a save a little more difficult. The fact that he could perform well in that system bodes well for him to perform well behind what is perhaps an even stronger defense in Seattle. And if these two guys hold up to as build, which they look to be able to do, this is going to be a top three, four tandem in the league. Um, really, really strong. And I think they're both really motivated by this opportunity too. I like how they're responding off the ice, what they're saying, what energy they're giving off. So 
and Grubauer was a Vesna finalist just last year. So they're going to be good. <laughs> <laughs> That's encouraging to hear now. So it does hold up statistically that you actually need to establish the saves in hockey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, some goaltenders, you know, they like, they perform differently. They're, they want to have more pucks. Some are fine without. Um, but again, it's just adjusting just like all the players and the skaters are adjusting to new systems. That's what these goaltenders have to do too. All right. What is, what are the Kraken doing defensively in terms of both the, the the lines that they have and then a coaching strategy that is limiting shot opportunities like this? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're, we're starting to see some of it. And what the players are telling us too, it, it, hockey systems aren't rocket science, right? At the end of the day, there's some big, few concepts. And just like in any sport, teams are going to see film on every team and figure out what they're doing, but it's about executing it properly. And what the Kraken, let's start with the defenders proper. What the Kraken defenders are really focused on is getting the puck away from the opponent and holding on to it with possession and then getting it out of the zone. Some teams you will see, and, and this will happen from time to time. It's not terrible if it does happen, but it's the puck, you get the puck away from your opponent and you're sending it out of the zone, a dump, a, a big mm -hmm. long, just throwing the puck out of the zone. This defense really wants to hold on to the puck and get it out of the zone with possession. They're also going to be supported by probably the center, but one of the forwards is going to be there almost as a third defenseman to act as an outlet valve for that puck to go to, for that puck to move to. So there's an effective control, get the puck away from opponents, anticipating where opponents are, using your body positioning, being physical to keep shots to the outside, and then getting that puck out, moving it with control. And then in terms of limiting chances against, one of the things the forwards are going to be instrumental in too is the idea of the forecheck. So there can be no shots if your opponent doesn't have the puck. And the four check is going to be all about that. It's going to be about keeping the puck in the offensive zone. And if the opponent gets it away from you, not just backing away and saying, okay, let's go back and help play defense. It's saying, no, no, we're in the offensive zone. This is where we want to be. Let's pressure our opponent and get the puck away as quickly as possible. So we have another offensive opportunity. So the four check is about saying, I'm going to push my opponent back into their zone and never even let them move. So defensively, push opponents to the outside, get the puck, get it out with control. So you're limiting chances, both where they happen when the opponent does have the puck and then taking the puck away. And then the forwards support that effort, but also with this idea of the very aggressive forecheck, challenging from the minute an opponent gets the puck in their own zone to get it back and create more chances for the crack. And then the opponent never gets a chance to make. So this almost sounds soccer style. It's the difference between a club that's playing very direct and just lumping the ball up as opposed to more of a tiki taka style. Yeah, exactly. And if you, if people know soccer, you know, I always say that soccer is a great way to think about hockey with less rules. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if, if you're following soccer, bring that kind of perspective and that kind of eye to hockey, and you'll see a lot of concepts and ideas and play styles translate for sure. That makes sense. Uh, let's get into kind of the overall sense of where the Kraken are going to be this season. Uh, a few different things I looked at the, uh, the William Hill sports book has them as 50, 50 to make the playoffs this season, uh, on the athletic, the projections from John Lucian 10th best projection, which was pretty shocking because it seems like the conventional wisdom about this team and especially the lack of goal scoring, the questions there is more like my colleagues at ESPN who in the first foul rankings of the season have the Kraken 25th. So where out of that wide range is reasonable <laughs> for fans to expect going into the season. 
Yeah, so I, I hate point total projections personally, um, but here's why I do think the Kraken have a legitimate shot at being a playoff team. Um, I think they have a legitimate shot being a playoff team because of the division in which they are playing. They are playing in a division with teams like Anaheim, San Jose, uh, LA, which is on the cusp of becoming a really strong team, but they're very young. Um, Vancouver. These are teams that are not maybe at their best strength and at their most potent ability as a team right now. So the Kraken have the ability to have a spot in their division that puts them in a playoff spot where if they were in another division, they might perform as not, might not perform as strongly. And because in hockey, you play most, most of your games against divisional opponents that can let you rack up the points too. Did I think Dom's projection was a little high <laughs> and I love Dom, but I do, but I do think that they're probably going to have a really good shot at being a playoff team because they're going to be strong. I don't think I don't think they're at full potency yet either. I think they're going to be strong, but I think the division really aids in their ability to to get at least a couple postseason games under their belt. Look, as a veteran in the NBA of coming up with projections that people think are totally ridiculous, I understand that sometimes you look at it, you're like, "Well, I don't know about this one," I, but probably there's a kernel of truth in there that's closer to that than it is to conventional wisdom, maybe. Right. Absolutely. Damn models. <laughs> It's, it's tough because obviously you put a lot of work into designing a model and you, you believe in it for a reason, but that doesn't mean you literally believe everything it puts out. That's right. That's right. But yeah, I mean, if they're middle of the pack still, that's a, a very different, different team that we're talking about in terms of expectations. So you, you mentioned the, the schedule effect, obviously, of playing in division. Is there a component? I, this, is, this is where we get to the, the, the no, very novice question part of the portion in terms of where you're seated in the playoffs, or is it, is it one through eight in the Western Conference? So it's, shoot, how does it go now? Because there were different divisions last year. Watch right. me screw this up. <laughs> um, so it's the top three, it's the top eight teams in the conference. So points will help where you're seated for sure. Um, And then divisional winners, the top team in the division get, and that, you know, that's where home ice advantage comes into it too. I'm so rusty on my playoff knowledge, but you want to have as many points as possible (laughs) to end up not being in an unenviable position of not having home ice advantage. Okay, so the so the top three in each division qualify automatically. So okay, right. so definitely, and then and then it's back. points, and then it's points for the final two, I believe, because each conference has two divisions. So there's eight teams. Yeah, yeah, that'll be that'll be interesting to watch throughout the course of the season. Uh, you know, I wanted to talk about kind of a little more general topics and in terms of our understanding of hockey and then hockey statistics, particularly, what are some of the sort of the key stats and indicators we should be watching this season to understand how well the Kraken are playing? What's what's going right? What's going wrong? Yeah, it, well, it's going to be interesting because particularly if you're just starting to come into hockey, the public stats, so stats that we'll see on NHL.com or on score sheets or on scoreboards are good, but they're not really going to portray the nuances of how the Kraken wants to play. So you can look at, if you want to look at just those NHL stats, a key thing to look at is going to be shot count, right? Are you shooting more than the other team? If you are, you have a pretty good chance of winning the game. And also for the Kraken, if you're shooting more, that means your defensive strategy is working, right? You're limiting your chances. Now, because when we talk about the nuances of the Kraken's game, 
I like to look at some more advanced numbers. Um, shots on goal, which is what you'll see on a big scoreboard or on a box score, are only pucks that the goalie interacts with or that end up in net. So we like to look at shot attempts, which is every puck that was fired the goaltender's way, even if it misses the goal or if it's blocked in process. That's a more mathematically sound number to look at in terms of predicting winning or not winning. And then when we look at how the Kraken plays, you can apply on top of shot uh, attempts, shot quality. Um, and this is very similar to soccer. We were talking about this too, the idea of expected goals. So shot quality is going to be a big thing I'm going to look at. And then that flips around and we can look at that for goaltenders. I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about the two that the Kraken have. We can look at how many pucks they save for sure, but we can also look at how much quality did they face and how much did they prevent? Because we want to see those goaltenders not just turning away the pucks that they quote unquote should, but performing well against high danger chances that might come their way, exceeding expectations in terms of the shot quality they face. And then the final thing that I'm really going to be interested in and watch is what we like to call transition data. So I talked about how the defense wants to get the puck out of the zone. We would call that a zone exit. How, do you, how often are they getting the puck out of the zone? Are they doing it with control? That's going to speak to that ability of the defense to kind of be the engine of the team and start the offense going from the back end. So those numbers are not going to be on your box score or perhaps your scoreboard. Little teaser, we might be able to talk about some of that on the Kraken website. Watch for that coming your way. Um, but you can find that data. It's just going to have to be a little bit more digging. Um, there are sites like Corey Schneider's All Three Zones. I give a shout out always to Evolving Hockey and natural stat trick, both great places to start if you want to look at some more advanced data for hockey. Those are some of the numbers I'll be looking at. Yeah, I mean, this is very familiar in basketball where, you know, the, the NBA stat side has improved tremendously within the last decade and now is a premier resource, but we were used for many years to uh, going to other locations. And then obviously that's a, that's a place that people can get their start as analysts and sometimes end up working in the league as, as has happened in the Kraken's front office with Alex Mandricki. And it seems like one of the strengths of this team without question is going to be the analytics department with her in a leadership role and, and friends of the pod, Danny Chu and meet in Nanda Kumar. Uh, what are sort of the things we have a sense of this maybe in, you know, football, it's whether you're going for fourth downs, decisions like that in basketball, it's your shot charts, things like that. What are some of the indications in hockey that the Kraken are playing in analytical style or something that's informed by their, their department? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think that the, the analytical indicators for me are probably going to be those stats that I just mentioned because it's not necessarily the fact that every team has to play a certain way. It is this team playing the style that they've designed themselves to play and that they've built a roster to play. Um, so I'm going to look at probably those stats that I already shared, but globally across the NHL, that shot attempt number that I mentioned, which can also be a percentage, um, is probably something that you can look at across the league. If I am looking at all teams, that's going to be a number I look at first is that shot attempt number. And what's an important distinction in hockey is we usually look at just five on five play, right? We exclude out special teams play because it muddies the data in terms of tr its true predictive value. So we look at five on five shot attempt percentage. And if it's above 50%, that means you're usually getting more than your opponent. 
And if you're usually getting more than your opponent, you're much more likely to win the game. So from a league perspective, you'll also hear that number called Corsi, but I feel like shot attempts is actually what it is. Let's call it what it is. Um, shot attempt percentage is a league wide kind of quick take. How are they doing? That's one of the first places you'll look. Yeah, I have to, again, take some blame for some of these names like that with uh, my Shaney system in the NBA, but definitely uh, trying to probably move away from getting getting too much use of those. Uh, we, where do you feel like this Kraken analytics group ranks relative to the league and their investment in that department? Obviously, these are people who are friends of, friends of yours, so uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a, a little bit awkward, but just in terms of the investment. Yeah, I am biased. Let's own it. <laughs> um, I, you know, I do. I, I cannot say enough about the three individuals that we talked about, and they've also got some other tremendous staff helping them out, developing um, in-house applications, doing video work for the team. It speaks so strongly that, that, and I think it's a luxury of being a new team, right? You don't have to undo years of systematic ways or organizational design that make it harder to bring in an analytical focus into your hockey ops team. But it's really progressive. It's really progressive because it's not all just people who played the game and, and old white men who played hockey. Um, it, it really is astounding that they put such an investment in it and you see it up and down how things are happening in the organization. I, you, know, you can see data being used in really meaningful ways in terms of how they're connecting with their fan base, in terms of how they're thinking about introducing this wonderful brand new arena that's being built. I, I do think, again, owning my bias, that this is perhaps one, this is the strongest analytical organization in the NHL right now. And I think that what makes them strong is not just their extreme intelligence and ability, but also the culture that Alex specifically has brought to her team, which is not just here we are doing our analytics, you know, here, take. It's very collaborative. It's very informed by hockey information and those who know the game. And so it's not this perspective of, oh, go talk to the analytic guys, right? It's very intertwined with thinking about the game in terms of what our eyes see and what our minds know. And I think that's the way it should be done. And I think that's going to be another reason why um, they're a huge asset up and down, um, even all the way into draft. As we know, Namita has done that work as, and it's her strength um, into player evaluation and game evaluation going forward. Yeah, when, when I met uh, Danny and Namita at the uh, 2020 Sloan Conference before everything shut down, one of the takeaways from other people in the NHL world seemed to be that there was a lot of jealousy of the ability to put together this department from scratch and go through all these processes, like you mentioned, as opposed to having to come in and try to do them on the fly. And then just having them integrated so early as you're hiring scouts and, and starting that process as well. 100%. You know, and Cami Granado, who's a scout for the crack and has a podcast, and she's talked about this on her podcast. One of the things that um, Alex's team did was they helped just bring a web a web based, I don't know if it was shiny or what it was, but a web based application to enter in scouting reports. And, you know, Cami shared how helpful that was to her. So that's what I was mentioning before is that this isn't just about modeling and looking at data. This team is really thinking about how do we make what we're doing accessible and how do we make it usable and how do we make it valuable? And sometimes it's the presentation of the data and that that is what makes it so valuable. Maybe it's, and I don't know what the data look like, but you know, maybe that's what made scouts connect with it more and therefore it becomes more valuable in-house, player evaluation gets better, et cetera, so on. Maybe it wasn't revolutionary, but because Alex's team took the time to put together something that was so user-friendly and that the scouts embraced, 
data became part of their process without it feeling like they had to take their medicine. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's wrap up with what's one thing we should be watching on Tuesday night when the Kraken take the ice for the first time for real against the Golden Knights? Yeah, for me, what I'm going to be watching for um, in terms of a big picture perspective, the way that this team is going to have to play is, is hardworking. So we need to see a consistent effort um, for most, if not all, of those 60 minutes. And when we think about all that ideas that we already talked about in terms of controlling shot quality, being defensively oriented, we want to see, we particularly saw this in the first preseason game against Vancouver, keeping that area in front of their goaltender clear as far as where shots come from, from Vegas. We want those shots coming from the perimeter and then we want the defense getting the puck on their stick and getting it out. Um, you can look at that on charts later, but it's something your eye can see. So watching where those pucks come from. And then again, just watch to see if this team can put the puck in the net. They're going to have to work hard for it. But, you know, watching for that. And if it doesn't come at first, sticking with the process and continuing to fight for the chances. Well, that's great stuff. That's uh, certainly going to help me and, and hopefully the listener watch the game on Tuesday as well. Uh, besides the broadcast, wh where can people find your, your work? My work will be on the website as well. We'll have some, some writing around each game, both before and after. Um, and then again on the broadcast as well, which I'm just floored that, that I have the opportunity. So uh, let me know if I screw stuff up, guys. I'll be happy to hear the feedback. And at Allison L on Twitter. That's it. That's right. I already screwed up. I said, uh, I said Blackwell's first name wrong. I confused him with Mason Appleton. He's Colin Blackwell. So please don't dig <laughs> me for that one. I, I wasn't going to catch that admittedly. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much. It's so exciting to be part of this. And I'm so excited to see all the enthusiasm around the newest NHL team.